at the time, this was back in what, 71, 72, Silicon Valley was just sort of, the name I think had only been coined, not maybe around that same time. And most advertising agencies, especially the ones that we're familiar with, they were not interested in coming down to Silicon Valley. I think until Atari came along, I mean, you couldn't have gotten any of those folks from San Francisco to come down. Hello, I'm Evelyn Sito, former graphic designer at Atari, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience. Welcome to the show. I'm Richard May. For those of you listening for the first time, the Ted Dabney Experience is a podcast project that allows Paul Drury, Tony Temple and myself an opportunity to speak at length with not only the leading lights, but also the supporting cast from the golden age of video arcade gaming. I'm here as usual with the aforementioned Mr. Drury. Hello. Retro Gamer Magazine stalwart and collector of fine vintage video game cell sheets, aka more prosaically flyers, <laughs> and for this episode only, the author of The Art of Atari and Pac-Man Birth of an Icon, Mr. Tim Lapatino. Hi. I'm a stickler for a format, so Tony stood aside for this particular episode in order to maintain the triumvirate. He'll be back behind the mic as usual next time. For this episode, we speak with former Atari graphic designer Evelyn Sito. Evelyn worked at Atari under the legendary George Opperman on some of the company's most iconic graphic material, from arcade cabinets to consumer packaging, including the famous Fuji logo that even today, long after Atari, at least as we know it for the purpose of this podcast, was dead and buried. This is more of a sideways view of the video game industry during the late 70s and early 80s than you may be used to with us, but if I say so myself, it's equally as fascinating. It was a real pleasure to hear Evelyn talk about her graphic design career, which took her everywhere from Atari to HP and Apple, and also to working for Atari co-founder Nolan Bushnell's many post-Atari toy-slash-tech ventures, such as AG Bear and Androbot. As ever, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear and appreciate an ad-free podcast, you can support us at Kofi. The URL for that is ko-fi.com forward slash TDE podcast. And you can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. Evelyn. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, we've wanted to talk to you for quite some time, so thank you very much. And I should also say thank you to our guest co-host for this episode, Mr. Tim Lapatino, for making this happen. Thanks, Tim. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, to begin with, um, Tim and I are going to dig into your time at Atari, and, and Tim will then take you back in time even further. <laughs> and I wanted to dive straight in by addressing the issue of anonymity at Atari. Um, obviously not something unique to, to Atari, to the company. You know, the fact that engineers went wholly uncredited, not to mention that, you know, the industrial designers, graphic artists and illustrators 
did this ever bother you back then, Evelyn? You know, working with such a creative powerhouse as George Opperman, uh, you know, and being part of such a talented team, or was it simply the nature of being an in-house design team member? I think it was probably the nature of being in, you know, in-house. Um, the idea of getting credit for uh, your work when you work for a corporation, I don't think is was usual then because hmm. um, I've worked at other corporations before and you know uh, and I worked on other art projects but yeah we didn't you know it was you didn't get individual credit and and maybe that was just what it was back in the time because when Atari started I mean I, I had just left HP yeah. and I mean people were wearing uh, shirts and ties back then and you worked for you know we weren't IBM but you know along IBM was in our, our valley as well and you know that's, you know, it was aerospace. Everybody still wore shirt and ties and they wore their pocket protectors with their pens in it. <laughs> okay. So I think it was all collaborative and you didn't, I don't think individual uh, credit was usual back then. Sure. Um, Evelyn, one of the things Tim discussed with you when talking to you for, for his book, The Art of Atari, is that in, in many ways, graphic designers are almost like the, the hub of the creative process. And I think you've just alluded to that. Um, designers end up working with photographers, illustrators, writers, and everyone else. And you you essentially end up being the last link in the chain in putting together something like Atari's packaging and coin-op cabinet graphic art. Is that how it actually works at Atari? And what, what did being part of that in-house group teach you about the process and about video games in general during that era? Well, when I first joined Atari, uh, George had left his agency and uh, went in-house to do the graphics for the coin-operated cabinet games. Consumer games was probably in the background still. I was unaware of it mm. at the time because it was a different organization that Nolan probably started. And I was George's number two. Mm. So uh, I was basically his assistant. And um, we worked in this narrow little hallway our desks facing each other. That was all the space we had before we moved into the new corporate building. And so uh, I worked mostly on the non, at the time when I first started working with him, I, I worked on the non artwork uh, for the cabinets. I worked on more of the marketing, the printed materials, such as the cell sheets or newsletter or whatever he had going on at the time. But uh, the games are coming, being designed pretty fast and furious, and so we needed to step up. Mm. And so um, I was tasked to try and find some talent. And so that's what I did. I, I kind of tapped the resources I had to see who was available or interested in even coming to work at Atari. And um, ultimately, the coin-op group was about eight people. Uh, at least when I was still there. And um, we recruited Bob Flamante, Jim Kelly, Steve Hendricks, Jim Arita, uh, Roger Hector, Jolt Vanderweyck, okay. uh, who was also also worked at George's studio uh, originally. And Jolt was our main production And you said, guy. sorry, Evelyn, you said sell sheets. Um, that's the terminology. Those are the, uh, yeah, those are the marketing, you know, flyer sheets. Ah, that would go out to the distributors to talk about uh, the new game. It would give you the graphics of the new game. It would give you the yeah, specs, yeah. Uh, details of the gameplay. Oh, that's good, actually. That's something Paul wants to dive into quite specifically um, further down the line. Uh -huh. um, Tim, Tim quite rightly dedicates a significant portion of the art of Atari to George. Yes. And is heretofore, you know, really barely acknowledged, but clearly vital and essential contribution to the early success of Atari. And, you know, his influence as a company driven by 
engineers and game designers and how you all impacted the marketing and design, um, you know, which in turn was one of the things that separated Atari in many ways from other video game companies. Is it is it fair to say regarding George with Tim's book that the record has finally been set straight? Yeah, I think Tim, originally when Tim called me, <laughs> I don't know where I was working at at the time, Tim. Do you remember? I believe it was, was it San Jose. Was I working the... at? Anyway, uh he was very interested in the um, the cartridges uh, from the consumer games. And I remember telling him, I said, well, why are you starting there? Shouldn't you start with the coin-operated games? Because that's kind of where it all right. started. Yeah. And uh, at the time, that's kind of where Tim and I kind of started our conversation um, because George really kind of set the look for the coin-operated games. And mm. it did influence, I'm sure it influenced the consumer games. And But I wasn't, I was not with the consumer group initially so i don't know uh what transpired in terms of design for the initial packaging and such initially with the consumer games so sure but uh i don't know that george had any influence on the consumer games per se uh because he was he was totally focused on the coin operated maybe may, maybe by osmosis if you like uh, if not directly uh-huh yeah because i i never uh yeah i've never talked to anybody about initially how the consumer games even started sure and the re the record on um, on george really is is rather sparse considering the uh the quality of his work mm -hmm. um considering his, his his portfolio it's um you know examples you know you know prior to tim's book are really few and far between yeah uh other than the logo yeah yeah <laughs> i uh he never really uh spoke about his background all that much and you know i think you know we're also busy working i don't know that people got that uh that much information out of him and unfortunately those that might have been closest to him have passed on as well so i don't yeah so i don't uh have any uh background on on him other than you know i know he he was multi-talented he he could write he could design and he could you know uh yeah it was quite the rena renaissance man wasn't he yes he was and he worked uh, uh I, he just loved it you know i mean he just i think he I, I called him a workaholic, but I think he just loved what he was doing. Yeah, and he and he um, he passed sadly, nineteen eighty four or five. Yeah, he was only. I think he was only in his fifties. So it was nineteen eighty five. Yeah, he was. Um, mm. I've I've asked. I have asked this question of Tim um, when he was a guest on the show, and I'll ask it of you. Um, and you may or may not be able to answer it. Is it is it fair to posit that George, being a little older than Atari co-founder Nolan Bushnell? Um, who was and probably still is, at least as far as legend goes, um, not a man known, known for following orders. Did did George's wisdom and experience serve to temper Nolan's famously impulsive nature, perhaps? Did did Nolan listen to George more than he did others? I honestly don't know because um, I was not part of that circle. Right. And um, I was pretty much just a worker bee. So, uh, and I, I know Nolan had tremendous respect for George's ability as a designer. Mm. So I would venture to guess that if George had any influence on any of the concepts uh, on, you know, engineering, sales, or Nolan, I mean, I think that they probably, you know, listened. Sure. Can we dig, can we dig a little more into your your personal day to day at Atari Evelyn, because obviously we're talking about George here. And um, can you can you just tell us more about a day to day at Atari for yourself? I have to go. I have to. I have to dig back. <laughs> sure. It was uh, 
Well, initially it was just really busy, you know. Um, you know, George did all the design, and um, if there was a game that first, I think when I first started with him, he was working on a game called Le Mans, which was a driving game. Yeah. And I, that's the first um, cell sheet I think I worked on for him. Uh, he initially designed, he, you know, he designed everything. I just executed on the production end of it. And so, um, and if he wasn't working on a game concept, he was working on the marketing materials and or he was working on an ad or he was working on, you know, whatever promotion, you know, they may have needed to uh, develop sales for the, you know, the sales guys and, and, and mm. the distributors. Yeah, sure, sure. And my day-to-day was pretty much whatever George needed to have done. Okay. And then, and then initially when the team got bigger, um, I did get to work on a couple of the um, cabinet designs, uh, but I chose or he, I was given the assignments that didn't require as much figurative illustrations. Um, like fire truck, which was a two man driving game. Yeah, sure, I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, actually, I worked on a couple of the more interesting cabinet designs. One of the other ones I worked on was the two game module, which was also was a generic cabinet. It didn't require a lot of illustration. They wanted something uh, generic in design because the game. Uh, the concept of the uh, cabinet was that they could install two games, one on either side. And the idea is that they could save money on having to redo new cabinets each time. And they would focus on the gameplay of the particular game. And then the front of the of the game module would be the focus of any graphics. Um, I'm not familiar with this. Is this something that didn't come to fruition? I mean, there was plenty of Atari stuff. Well, it did. It my it it did um i think for a brief time okay. i don't know why it was um it didn't gain more popularity and you might want to ask um roger hector i believe he's designed the cabinet originally sure okay and uh i don't know what happened to it the concept was interesting enough and i i think it was uh it was a money saver in concept to the distributor or the uh, buyers of the game because they didn't have to buy a new cabinet every time yeah and maybe that's why they decided not they may have decided that was the reason sure. <laughs> they weren't going to make any money <laughs> a, a little bit ahead of its time perhaps as well maybe and all but uh by the same token you when you have a generic game uh cabinet it doesn't attract people as much of course as a individual game cabinet and there was i think some discussion on whether the game graphics meant a whole lot on the side panels because when you're in an arcade, all the all the games are nested next to each other, so you don't see the graphics. But I think the concept is that you're really trying to sell the distributor on buying your game. Yeah. And oftentimes, I would believe that um, if the distributor bought the new game, they would give it a center spot where you know um, people would see the new game, they would see the graphics on either side before it would get moved into you know the lineup of arcade games. But while it was new, I have to say I think that was what the attraction is there. Yeah, I think George himself said something along the lines of you know everything graphic and industrial design do contributes to the you know the entire experience. Something along those lines. That's certainly my view as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, Tony, who's not taking part in this episode, and myself have a few um, original cabinets between us. And certainly for me, I've got a Star Wars cabinet, and that just would not be the game it is if it wasn't for, you know, the cabinet. And you know what I mean? It's, it's the whole experience for sure. What other game cabinet do you have? I have sold quite a lot of stuff. I did have a Black Widow. I had a Tempest um, cabaret or mini. Oh. Um, what else have I had over the years? 
Asteroids, Asteroids Deluxe. Um, Tony has a Battle Zone cabaret and a Gravatar. Oh We're the least afflicted <laughs> of our brethren, I would say. <laughs> we have a disease, but we, it, it's, it's kept in check. It's in remission. Okay. <laughs> um, well, if you're if you have it set up in your game home game room, I'm sure your children are loving. Yeah, it. When, when when they're allowed. <laughs> I'm the comic book guy. Um, so, so Evelyn Ernest Klein um, talks about the game box and cartridge artwork of Atari Twenty Six Hundred games, facilitating the player's imagination. Yes. You know, bridging the gap between expectation and the relatively crude on-screen graphics, mm-hmm. and even even allowing for the fact that arcade games were obviously graphically a significant step up from home games. Would you agree that the same principle applied um, to coin up? Oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Because otherwise, they're just too blips on a screen. Even the title of a game may or may not influence gameplay. Absolutely. And then um, it's there to talk to your imagination. So if you didn't have that, it's simply yeah, sure. No, it's 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 less of an abstract thing for sure. Yeah, it, it's kind of yeah. I mean, it kind of I guess the the graphics just takes the abstraction out of it, right? So you have something to kind of go on, and your brain kind of fills in the gap. Yeah, something to whet the appetite, draw you in for sure. Yeah, but also contribute to the overall experience. Yeah, because I think your brain is what fills in the the the, uh, the gameplay the excitement the winning or losing your you know uh your game yeah it uh entices you to put another quarter in i can get it next time or my game score is going to be a lot bigger this next time because i'll be better at it and you know and so yeah they chase those little spaceships around <laughs> the <laughs> the screen yeah, right sure. um okay lovely evelyn thank you we'll we'll go back a little further now and i'll hand you over to tim to talk about your time before atari well i wanted to go back a little bit farther evelyn i wanted to talk a little bit about you know just the very beginning of your career and if i recall correctly you came from san jose state is that right uh yeah i got my graphic design uh my bachelor's at uh, san jose state yes Right. And that's, an, I mean, it's an art school, but you studied design. Like, how did you, t- tell us about your background and why did you choose design over maybe a more traditional fine art program? When I was uh, in high school, I was, uh, I, you know, I liked art and I felt that's, it was just what I liked. It wasn't, uh, I grew up in a, in a immigrant family and my parents were primarily focused on earning a living. We were not um, in a position to provide extracurricular activities and uh, but I always liked art in school and uh, I don't know how I, I didn't have a lot of direction so it was a, I was a little lost right so but anyway somehow or other um, I didn't go directly to university I went to uh, junior college and they had a commercial art program and so I went ahead and got my two-year degree there first and my parents, of course, ex- their expectation is that, you know, I become a teacher. My father always thought I should be a lawyer because he said I like to argue. Uh, I don't, I didn't agree with that. But anyway, um, <laughs> so, you know, the idea of being an artist, I think was lost on them a little bit because they didn't see a, a career path. And I said, oh, but I'm going to go into the kind of art that makes money is what I told my parents <laughs> because it was commercial art. It wasn't like just painting and drawing and being a starving artist, which is, I think, what they pictured. Was there something about that that appealed to you, or were you just being practical? I mean, I think I was being practical. Um, I really don't recall what pushed me into co- the commercial art aspect of it because I always felt like I never had enough 
painting and drawing background. And uh, when I told, in fact, my nephew, who's a, who's a filmmaker now, when he was in school, you know, he was kind of vacillating between, you know, what he should do because he was artistic as well. And I told him, I said, you know, I said, get the basics and, you know, get your painting and drawing in there because I always felt I was lacking. Could I just rudely interject here, Evelyn, and ask, is, is that why you shied away from the less figurative stuff when it came to coin-op cabinet design? Yeah, because I, I didn't have the... Um, the skill set. Yeah. And I wasn't driven enough to do it on my own. And so, you know, because some people, I mean, they're just, you know, they have, you know, it's like people who are what I call real artists. Their passion is so strong. They paint and draw regardless yeah. if they get paid for it or not. Right. And I always had an interest, but I was always, I had to earn a living. So that's, that was more of my focus than the passion of painting and drawing. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But it's interesting just to point out at that time, you know, there was probably a even blurrier line then, you know, between design and sort of fine art as you were. Now those things are completely separated, right? But you still had a little bit, you know, you had some training. I mean, you know, I, I hired graphic designers who've never painted a single thing, right? You know, they're they're very much right. digitally focused and they're, they're, you know, they don't do fine art, but at least you, there was still some overlap there. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, I think design, I think what I learned in, uh, when I was at junior college, and actually I learned a lot in junior college. And when I started at San Jose State, I was really surprised how, you know, I, they wouldn't let me take the senior classes right away. I had to go backwards hmm. and repeat classes I had already had. And most of those, I'd already, I already understood what mechanical art was. Some of these people never knew what it was. They didn't know what a paste up was, is what we used to call it. Right. So I already knew that part. And I, I think what I liked about design, I think, was there was a problem to solve. And and I think I was better at the problem solving part than it's kind of like I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to necessarily execute it. So that's where graphic design and being an art director kind of fit the bill a little bit better for me because I knew what I wanted something to look like in the end right so you're looking at you have a vision in mind and you're not just using your own tools to execute it but how can you marshal all the other people you know and their talents to get the thing that you see at the end of the tunnel yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to curious about so you're you're finishing up school you're getting out there and your first job you went right to opperman Harrington. can you tell us that story oh yeah oh, this is a funny story um here's the thing about san jose state i had heard it was a good art school when i when i was transferring over and the reason i i went to san jose state was because i i had some friends that were living in the bay area i'm originally from los angeles and so and i was looking for an excuse to move away from home and so uh and i heard san jose state was a good art school However, when I got there, I realized San Jose State was known more for its fine arts and their graphic design department was fairly new. And so I graduated when um, San, Jose, San Jose State's reputation as a good graphic design school happened after I left. Interesting. And yeah, so that, so I'm thinking like, I always feel like I was behind. Because it was so early on in their development. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, the same thing with the computer, right? I mean, it's kind of like I worked for HP when they were PCs and all the graphic designers I knew were on Macs. <laughs> So I was like, I'm always behind. So anyway, I keep asking myself, what kind of designer would I have been if I had been right more timely on a lot of things? When I left San Jose State, I wanted, I actually would have liked to have stayed a little longer to take more illustration classes because there was some excellent illustrator, um, illustration instructors there. But I was the oldest of my siblings and they were coming behind me. So I had to get 
myself out of school and working. So again, um, I you know it was it was more about being practical than being passionate. Yeah, but that but it's such a good isn't that such a good quality to be a designer and to say okay this is what I have what am I going to do with it? Yeah, and so when um, they had uh, for the graduates school was able to get some internships for uh, some of the students. Unfortunately, I couldn't take advantage of it because I had to go back to L.A. and run my parents' restaurant business while they went on much-earned vacation. So I kind of missed out on the internship. And so um, when I came back home after or came back to San Jose after the summer, uh, a friend of mine who was who had the internship at George Opperman was moving on to another job. So she recommended that she recommended me to George. Can I, I'm just struck. Can I just say how I feel like the parallel between running a restaurant and being an art director? Those are feel like very similar in my mind. <laughs> Well, my parents had uh, started a restaurant when I was in high school. And uh, what's funny about that is most of my friends were out having a great time doing things that the teenagers do. And I had to go work at my parents' restaurant. It was the bane of my existence at the time. (laughs) And my parents didn't have a small mom and pop restaurant, which typically a lot of uh, Chinese restaurants are. They're like, you know, small family operation. But my parents in the community we were in uh, developed quite a big, large restaurant. So, you know, let's put it this way. We had 10 cooks in the back. Wow. So, wow. So this is not a small endeavor. No, it wasn't. And uh, not that I ran it, but I was there to kind of keep an eye on things because everybody had their their roles, obviously. So anyway, but, you know, my parents need to go on on a vacation and I was finished with school. So it was, you know. So you've, you've already got some sort of you know, street experience here. You work with people, you're kind of practical and sort of you're thinking. And that first internship at Opperman Harrington, where George Opperman was there, and he founded that with uh, Ursula Harrington, right? Yes. Can you tell us that, what was that story? What was it like being an intern there? Mm-hmm. Well, I was I was anxious and nervous and not wholly confident. You know, I mean, you know, it's like it was your first job, right? So, sure. and, jo- and I quite frankly, I found George intimidating. <laughs> And, uh, you know, he had one art director, Jack Pendergast, a writer, Gordon Rothwell, and uh, the manager at the time when I was uh, a production was Bruce Hamilton. And later on, Jolt Vanderweyck joined George after Bruce left. So, you know, Jolt and and Bruce were, were, you know, uh, seasoned production managers. So, you know, obviously I I got to learn a little from from them uh, to handle things. And so, you know, it was practical experience for sure. I mean, you know, we had things like we had clients who, you know, had a lot of brochures and, and, and advertising things that, you know, George that, you know, he would design or Jack would design. And then, you know, once it was approved, it was uh, then up to uh, the production department of two to execute and get printed or, or inserted into the, you know, magazines and stuff. So, And how would you qualify that kind of work? I mean, was it a lot of corporate work? Were you doing... You know, was it a lot of advertising, editorial? I mean, or was it all of those things? It was all of those things because at the time, this was back in what, 71, 72, Silicon Valley was just sort of the name I think had only been coined, not maybe around that same time. And most advertising agencies, especially the ones that we're familiar with that had the big names like from New York, they were not interested in coming down to Silicon Valley to do any of our work. I mean, because most of the, most of the 
businesses that were in Silicon Valley, it was business to business. They were making uh, electronic equipment for other companies. That's not sexy stuff to an advertising agency from Madison Avenue. They're used to selling consumer products. Right. And so um, Regis McKenna, who was another uh, agency in Palo Alto, I mean, he kind of started making corporate work a little bit more interesting. Uh, and so he started working with Intel and some of these other companies, and he started making their business-to-business uh, -business advertising a little bit more interesting. But until... I think until Atari came along, I mean, you couldn't have gotten any of those folks from San Francisco to come down. In fact, a funny story talking about how people are um, compartmentalizing people's abilities and talents. When I first got out of school, one of my first interviews was with uh, BBDO. And I'm, I had an interview with this man named Herb Briggs, who was one of their senior design, uh, designers or art directors at the time. So I, took, I trotted up there to San Francisco to show this man my work. And I was nervous as can be. He looks at my portfolio and he leaves through it and he says, you're a graphic designer. I said, yeah. And he goes, why do you want to do advertising? And I'm thinking like, what does he mean? Isn't it one and the same? in my mind. But that interview with him made me realize that it is not necessarily the same because advertising agencies may not operate the same way as design firms. Right. Because advertising agencies, I guess, at the time I, I was unaware, a graphic designer and an art director is usually linked up with a copywriter and you got to know how to write headlines. Yeah. And as a graphic designer, you may not need to do that. Right. There's a separation there, right? There's ad men, you know, there's the mad men, ad men, and then there's right. graphic designers who are more corporate, right? Right. Exactly. And, or you did the things like the brochures or you did, you know, which has advertising agency probably had people do that, but their focus was on advertising. It was on the commercial. It was on, you know, print ads. Yeah, 100%. Well, let's talk about that for a minute because obviously Atari, you know, with CoinOp, it really starts business to business, right? They're not selling to consumers. No, they're not. Right. They're selling to operators and owners and, you know, places like that. Right. And then, so you take, the, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, mm -hmm. uh, but then you make the move at Atari, uh, you know, to to go from CoinOp to to consumer was that purposeful did you just feel like hey you know that's that's really what i want to do well before i left hp um i was working in their first consumer division which was the calculators and prior to the calculators hp was only doing things business to business they were doing they were making medical equipment uh electronic components they were making uh oscilloscopes. I mean, really, you know, uh, electronic stuff for, you know, military or space or whatever, or electronic stuff. So the calculators was really their first entry into um, the consumer world. So I was already introduced to the consumer world. I was doing packaging for them. And I liked the packaging part because it, it felt like um, it, it kind of fell into the what you thought you were going to go to school for. It was to do the more consumer stuff. So when I when HP entered into that world, I was kind of excited about it. And my division was moving to Oregon. And I didn't see myself moving to Oregon at the time, nor did I and at the time, again, I was a little, the, HP was also then also getting into the computer business, but um, I didn't see myself staying there. But, and I guess uh, that's when George approached me. He had heard that I was leaving or I was probably going to be looking for another job because I wasn't going to go to Oregon. I don't know how he got that information. But anyway, <laughs> he calls me up and asks me about coming to work for him. 
So, so to tie this together, so you were there as an intern, you left and you went on to HP and you were there and then George mm-hmm. sought you out to come back to work with him now mm-hmm. that he was firmly planted in Atari. Yeah. What was that? How did you feel about that? I mean, this is somebody you didn't spend a ton of time with before, but what was it like to be invited back to this really different thing? Well, at the time, I mean, because I obviously I knew about Atari because I, you know, because um George had gotten the, the account when I was right. working for him before. I honestly didn't think I was going to ever work for George again. And uh, again, practicality, it was a job that was offered to me. So I thought, well, it was nice to be asked. And then I thought, well, I need a job. <laughs> so I said, this, you know, this will be good, you know, until, you know, I find another opportunity. So it was kind of to be able to transition without being out of work. Again, it's a practicality move. For sure. So um, I uh, went back to work for George and I thought, well, okay, well, let's see what where it goes from here, you know. I, but uh, the opportunity to go to consumer came around and I saw that as the next step. Because I wasn't an illustrator um, in CoinOp, I think my ability to do much more there was seemed limited to me. Mm-hmm. And so um, when uh, Steve Hendricks, actually Steve Hendricks had gone on to consumer himself. And um, and I knew I knew some people that, at, in the consumer group, but not very many. And then when I joined them, the department was already fairly, pretty good size. There was like four or five industrial designers. Uh, there was two packaging managers. There was a, a group of writers and production people. And then Steve Hendricks was managing uh, illustration. I There was already two other um, graphic design managers there. So I just was, I came on board as another designer. Well, and so you, so you had helped George build up CoinOp and then you had moved over to Consumer and you, now you've already got, you know, you had that connection with George, but now you move on to Consumer. Uh, did you feel like, you really had a sense of a lot of what Atari was doing. I mean, were you a video game player? I mean, or you just felt like, oh, I just know, I know all the players. I, you know, I helped hire some of these people. You just had the lay of the land. Like, how did you relate to Atari, the company? I, obviously the the company was changing and growing. And um, like I said, I think I felt like I maxed out my abilities or my ability to contribute much in the consumer, I mean, in the coin op area. And I think just consumer just seemed to open up a little bit more opportunity to do other things. And uh, there had been other coin op people who had moved over to consumer as well. Uh, Regan Chang being one of them uh, as an industrial designer. Right. And Barney Wang and then Steve. So, you know, there were other people who were looking to move on to other things as well. So um, it just sort of seemed like a natural transition. Evelyn, you mentioned Barney, and it's just popped into my head. If I don't ask you now, I will forget. Mm-hmm. Did Was Barney responsible for the pole position to cabinet artwork by any chance? I'm, I'm determined to identify not the, this. Not the artwork. Ah, do you know who was? That's a good question. I asked Steve the other day. In fact, I, that question had come up, so I think I asked Steve. Steve Hendricks. Yes, and I can't remember if he thought it was Terry Hoff or... Um, no, it couldn't have been Terry because Terry, Terry was not at CoinOp. I don't know. <laughs> Damn, I'm never going to find this out. Sorry, Tim. Sorry, Evelyn. I just uh, I, I just took the opportunity there. Carry on, guys. The only the only person I'm, other person I could probably ask is Jim Kelly. When I when I'm editing this and I hear I hear us talking about this, I'm going to ping you an email to remind you. Um, I I haven't talked to Jim in a little while, but I could give him a call, and I don't know that he'll remember. Sure. So 
And I don't know if Roger Hector might remember. Okay, sorry, sorry, guys. Tim, Tim, back out, back over to you, my no friend. Worries, sorry. No That's worries. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's the mystery of of who did the pole position for uh, coin op, right? Yeah, pole position two uh, specifically. It's such a beautiful illustration style, very much of its time, um, of course. Um, but it's like the one cabinet in Tim's book um, that, despite his um, his promise to identify, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I'm like. Right, still you don't got, know. You got me. No, we talked about this. And if Tim don't know, if Tim don't know, and you don't know. <laughs> what? Well, you know what? Uh, do you have the sell sheet? Do we know what copyright date? Well, Paul's it was? probably got um, a bunch of flyers. I don't know whether he's got pole position too. He might. He might want to quickly jump in here and confirm yay or nay. Sadly, no. He says I, in the I, um, in the show notes. Oh, okay. <laughs> never mind. Never mind. Yeah. And I, I at one time had almost all all the uh, cell sheets, but I don't remember pole position too. Okay, sadly, sadly enough. Okay, guys, sorry, back, back on track, back on track. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, Evelyn, one of the things that, uh, I mean, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this. You know, you described to me in other places calling yourself like a grunt at Opperman Harrington, but you actually had a, physically had a hand in the Atari logo, yeah. you know, which we were talking just before the this this episode, it's what you know. Arguably, you know, we're biased a little bit here, but maybe arguably one of the most famous identities of the 20th century. Yeah. And and you helped do some of the production work on it. Well, it's funny, you know. George designed it. He picked the typeface. You know, the type font was easy enough to you know that gets typeset by an outside organization. A lot of people may not know that, but there used to be things called type houses. <laughs> where you pick a typeface and you order it and you size it the way you want it and they they deliver it to you and then you uh put some glue behind it and you slap it on a board and you know and then you do do the line work for the for the logo part and you assemble it it's all in black and white and then from there it gets produced in you know other colors right so it wasn't like you know people were not typing into their computers and outputting on a laser printer you had to order it they would size it the way you wanted it to right and then you'd put it all together mm -hmm. so you had i mean you're always doing all this craft right you know there's all this craft work but you have to sit down with your hand and you know you've got this sketch concept maybe it's finished concept from george opperman mm -hmm. for that atari logo and you're the one that's putting all the finishing details in it that and that's the logo that goes out into the world right yeah you're i mean basically um Back in the day, you had to know how to ink using rapidograph pens and or ruling pens. And um, you had to line do the line work using French curves and right. templates. <laughs> so it's really frustrating when the ink crawls underneath that template and you have to start over. <laughs> right, right. Because there's no uh, control Z here, right? No. <laughs> And or, you know, you had to put the, the drops of ink in the ruling pen and then you had to screw that ruling pen to the right width to draw with. And so, yeah, it gets frustrating when, you know, the ink goes underneath your your templates and, you you know, then you got to start over or you or like Jolt used to do. We used to draw on this stuff called um, Duraline or Vellum. And he had this cool little instrument he created, which is like a scratching tool. And he would scratch off the ink. Right, if it wasn't quite right. <laughs> to correct it, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, things yeah, things are a little more handcrafted. And then when I used to work, uh, do some of George's ads, he would he, he's, he used to love to run the type along the edges of his illustrations. And um, he'd have the typesetter typeset it. You know, he'd give them the outline of his illustration, and then they would type typeset the lines according to his outline. But it was never... 
quite tight enough for him. <laughs> so I would have to cut between the lines of all the type that was nicely typeset by the typesetter and re and move everything according to how George wanted. Right. So you're puzzle piecing <laughs> this. Everything gets, gets closer together. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you're really an unsung hero, you know, <laughs> being a production designer, you know, in that era, because all these details that we just take for granted right now, you know, you can fix that in five seconds. You've got to do it. Oh, yeah. But I love the fact that you are, you know, you're responsible for taking I know. that logo that we all kind of know. Yeah. You know, you said you can see it. You can go to Target and buy an Atari shirt. You know, you took it that last mile, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I said, I, who knew that Atari would have such long legs after all these years? One of the things that we talk about, you know, we've talked about before is that all the people, you know, whether it's you or George Opperman uh, or even Nolan Bushnell coming into video games, you, you all aren't thinking about this as what would people in video games do? You're bringing your experiences from an HP, from consumer products. You know, the people coming in from Warner are thinking about the way they would market uh, movies or, you know, record the newest records, mm -hmm. right. And bring things from outside into this and what sort of makes Atari in some ways more robust than, you know, another company that spins off. That's really only done video games is it feels like there's a, a weight there and experience that comes across in the work that you did. Well, I think the kind of cool thing about Warner at the time was I think was the connections to all the licensing that was available to the consumer market and that was its own challenge in terms of the branding because we started to rebrand the Atari name and logo for the consumer market and when the original VCS game console came out it was that black box with all the little images of the mm -hmm. video games and the families playing the game and, and all of that and so um, Atari was getting ready to introduce a, a couple of new game consoles and so um, there was the the VCS which was the became 2600 was the, the lower end of the market and then there was going to be the 5200 at the higher end of the market and there was going to be a middle price unit and um we had to think about well how do we want that to look and it was odd that this middle price unit was coming out after the high end unit was coming out and so anyway so we had to figure out how how do we want to brand all these game consoles and at the time when we kind of settled in on that silver look we wanted to, we kind of assigned a color to red being the lower end, blue being the higher end, and then something in the middle for the middle. And um, unfortunately, they never made the middle end. I guess they only needed the lower end and the top end. So, but in doing that, we made the Atari name take front and center on the packaging. Right. And that translated to the cartridge games as well. It became a little more problematic when um, they start licensing games from either movie titles and or other video games from other manufacturers like Kangaroo or, you know, uh, SwordQuest or any of these other ones. All of a sudden, their name recognition for the game was an important deal. And you had to figure out, OK, well, these are Atari cartridge games, but, you know, we are licensing these names. So who takes precedence in terms of the branding? Does the name of the game? or Atari. So we had to do these um, conceptual layouts to figure out how are we going to manage this. And then um, what also came to play was licensing these children's games like Disney, Sesame Street, um, Peanuts. And so 
we did the kind of a series of, of layouts and figuring out how do we manage these names. What came out of that experiment was that we decided to separate the children's line and give it a whole different identity than the regular Atari 2600, 5200 game line. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I mean, I think we talked about this in in the book. You had given us some of the early design concepts Mm -hmm. you all had photographed to sort of see how does this all live together? Well, yeah, and the other thing that was interesting was because, you know, we had all these established cartridge games that existed already with all the colorful uh, game packages that we already had with the VCS console, we had all these, you know, Tim, you have this wall of, of colored boxes that you collect. Right. So, you know, that was sort of, you know, I think people had a hard time kind of mo- moving themselves away from that a little bit because they identify with those colored boxes so much. And um, what we decided, well, there was a, a moment where we thought, well, maybe in rebranding the t- that box, we, we actually just made the Atari bigger, kept the body of the box sim- similar. We just made the, the band bigger and we made that, did a layout with colored background, like a red top on that black box with a white Atari. And we did the same thing with a yellow one and a, a blue one, I think it was. And so we took those boxes, those mock-ups and took it to a store and we just kind of put it up against the uh, our own boxes and all the competition out there. And their boxes were all of, all of the boxes initially were very busy graphically. Right. And so what stood out was the cleaner looking Atari on our boxes. And I think if you just stand back a little bit, you could see the difference. And that I, unfortunately, I only had that one photograph that we did with the mock-ups with those busy Odyssey Magnavox boxes in the background and in our own VCS. But I mean, I think it kind of proved the point. I mean, the, the thing about packaging is you got three seconds to capture somebody's attention when they're walking down an aisle. And so um, that clearly told us that, you know, the bolder Atari was what was going to stand out. Yeah. And from there, we went, I, I don't I don't remember exactly why we explored the silk. We wanted something contemporary looking, I think, because the units... The industrial design on the consoles are very sleek and very, you know, modern looking. And so I think somehow or other, maybe it was just the time. Everything silver seemed more modern, right? So we went with the silver. Right. And sort of capturing that sort of Bang & Olufsen inspired industrial design. Right. And then when we when they were designing the console for the 3200, um, they wanted something graphic on it. So I, and, and Roy Nishi, who designed it, you know, asked me to look at doing something. And I don't know where I came up with the idea. But I just said, oh, I, I like the idea of this thin rainbow stripe underneath the in the console. And that same stripe ended up the silver packaging. Uh, I mean, Evelyn, you covered so many of the things that I wanted to talk about with packaging. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just wanted to say that it, it seemed like it seemed like part of the work that you're doing in consumer packaging as, you know, the 5200 is getting rolled out and the 2600 is getting rebranded, that it really is sort of Atari growing up in a sense. Yeah. And you being a part of that, uh, I mean, how does that feel? I mean, you know, it's like, I think as I said earlier, my confidence level was uh, was not always as high as some people's. And I think this is probably one of the areas where I feel like, okay, I think I, I made my contribution. And it was, you know, not just me too. It was just, you know, a team of people. But um, still, I think, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's my five minutes, right? <laughs> Absolutely. No, and that's fun. And it's cool to be able to see that influence carried across that Atari brand.
Hello, Ian Flynn. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm particularly excited to talk to you because I'm pretty sure I've got a piece of your work framed on my wall. Really? Uh, yeah, I'd, well, but I've only known that uh, today um, because I collect arcade flyers uh, and get the people that have created them to sign them. Uh-huh. And on my bathroom wall, I've got a super bug. Now, I think that's one of yours. Is that correct? Yes. And... Um... I was lucky enough to have some some of the other guys that I worked with in the coin op were really wonderful in trying to mentor me um, because obviously I didn't get a lot of it from George, but Bob Flamonti is one of those people. And it's actually, if you look on the tire on the flyer, you will see his name on one tire and my name on the other one. Oh, I should, to be fair, it is in my bathroom. So I have sat on the toilet. I sit on the toilet every morning and watch it. <laughs> so I, next time I'm doing that, I will look very carefully at the tires. Oh, it's, it's like, I feel like I'm in the Da Vinci Code, right? I just <laughs> discovered something amazing. Anyway, let me... Well, you, it's funny because you know how we were talking about how how um, the designers and the programmers never got their, you know, their name to sign anything. So that's when they started throwing in these things, yeah. you know, what I guess they're calling Easter eggs these days. You know, designers would do stuff like that. So um, I think some of our illustrators, I think, probably snuck their name in there somewhere. But I, that was one way Bob did that's it. That's fantastic. <laughs> let, let me ask you, I say I've got quite, a, quite an extensive collection. So I wonder if you did any, uh, some other ones that I've got. Um, uh, yes, tell us some of your your flyer work is there any that you particularly were particularly proud of perhaps well you know the flyer workers really a lot of it was designed by george right okay i might have added embellished some concept you know like asteroids i think i added the stripe the stripes was a big deal with the consumer i think we put stripes yeah. on that i have got asteroids so thanks if that's your stripes right? yeah so i think i think I did. I worked on that. I worked on fire truck, obviously. I did a lot of the uh, the type specking and stuff like that. But in terms of the design of the flyer, a lot of it was done by George or who or whoever's game it was. Yeah. Do, do you know how the pro? I am fascinated with this area. Is that how did the process work? I mean, did George and, and maybe yourself or part of the uh, others in the team? Did you actually talk to the people creating the game? Did you see the game, you know, as it was being made, or was it just here's the title, do something? Right. I mean, I think George, uh, he was he was definitely, you know, in the meetings with the, the sales team, Nolan, uh, the engineers, you know, to discuss the game concept. And then once the game concept was decided upon, uh, George would either um, design the title because I mean, the graphics for the title was everything right because it's on the track panel and uh, or the designer or he'd assign it to somebody and they would design it. And, and but all the information that's on the back of the the content and stuff is all probably written by George because he you know he would collect all that information from uh, the various sources that would you know we would just make sure it type fit into the the background. I think that's fascinating because of course these were things produced to get people to buy this product and now people like me are collecting them because we like the look of them right yeah they're they're cool i mean yeah they're great i mean i i, I think i've sold off most of mine at this point i know i have a uh, a folder full of some still around i that i found later but, but we might have to do some, there might be some deals being done after the show evelyn like <laughs> and the reason i like collecting well apart from it's wonderful to have the people that created the games actually sign uh you know some 
something that they made, is that, right, this is what I want to ask you about. I've noticed with Atari that this flyer seems to go through kind of stages. Like the early ones in the early 70s tend to feature real people playing the games like Tank or Grand Track. Yes. Then you get a sort of mid to late 70s and it kind of comes a bit more abstract. There's all these swirling patterns and colours and the one for Sprint is is wonderful. That's one of my favourites. And then you kind of get to the 80s and it becomes more focused on the actual game. There's often screen graphics and a picture of the cabinet itself. Mm -hmm. I just want to do, that's just me being a collector. Did you recognise these kind of changing styles? You know, what with you actually being part of the team that produced them? You no, I don't. I think without looking at them all all at once, especially the ones that are already graphically oriented, like uh, Steeplechase or one of those, where it was all definitely you know uh, uh, an illustration on the cabinet. He yeah. might have you know glommed onto that and then added that into the cell sheet, or like the pinball games certainly were very illustrated. The early ones, like the the two game module one, I think it had to be a photograph, you know, to show that you know there are two people playing the game. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't know if there was a because I remember Sprint was not Sprint was in the seventies, so it was yeah. late. I mean, it was one of the earlier games that yeah, I yeah. seventy seven, yeah, seventy eight, something like yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sprint and Night Driver, all of those, I believe, were all graphic. Yeah, they're just they're just beautiful things. I am. Um, it sounds like that the actual, you know, the bit that I'm interested in, or we're talking about now, the visual bit that was kind of sort of almost an afterthought. It was about the information you were trying to sell these products to uh, to an arcade operator. Mm-hmm. So again, I just want to. What, did you, did you realise that people would care about what you were producing on this this arcade flight, which is just trying to get someone to buy a big chunk of, you know, mechanical engineering? Uh, you know, I think when we were doing them, I think, I mean, of course, we always want it to look the best, you know, as it can. And, you know, as a, I think as any designer would want, I mean, obviously they want the flavor of the game on, on the sheet, but whether it, whether it was going to live on in prosperity in some shape or form, I don't think anybody had any idea. <laughs> so it was nice. So it was nice that that happened. But, you know, but, but what it's nice about it is it's, they're rare because it's not a consumer thing. It's a B2B thing. Of course, of course. I, I want to ask you something else about that the approach to flyers is that because you were there in those pioneering days is that it seems to me there was no obvious template for what you would expect to see on on a, on a flyer did you sense while you were in the in the tatari that that changed that as the industry became a multi-million dollar business that what was expected of game art became more fixed you know i honestly don't know because i left I was there from 76 to maybe 76, 77, and then moved on to consumer. So I don't actually remember what the sell sheet looked like after I left. Do you think that's true of of their approach to box at all kinds of video game art? Did you feel that you were there in the 70s when you were trying to work out a template? And then as things moved on, there was more of an idea of, well, that's what video game art should look like. Well... Consumer, obviously, their graphics and their illustrations were very different from from Coinop. Mm-hmm. Coinop, mm-hmm. because of the limitation of silk screening, mm-hmm. um, you know, we didn't have the four color uh, instant printing that you do now that you can now print on vinyl and just apply to a cabinet. Back in those days, everything was silk screened onto the side panel, and there was as many as eight colors or twelve colors that had to all be cut separately and registered. <laughs> so. You know, and so obviously the hard edge look was because of the limitations of silk screening and that 
transferred into the graphics that were on the printed materials as well. Which which I suppose makes them kind of of their time. Uh, yeah. Some of those early flyers uh, have some rather outdated depictions of, of women, like the very first one, computer space. Touch me. Yeah. Well, that was yeah. Got yeah. Thank you. Sorry. I thought I thought gotcha. you were coming on to me there, Evelyn. So you're referring to the game, right? Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Like the one. Sorry, that's throwing me off somewhat. But yes, you know they've got you're right, Gotcha and Quadrupon. They have kind of women in very stereotypical positions. Uh, computer space has a semi-clad lady, basically. Were you ever uncomfortable? with how women would be depicted in the art that you were involved with. Well, first of all, that that particular game, I think, was done before I got there. Yes, it was, yes. And uh, it was only, I think, early on that they... I think because arcade games come from the pinball world, mm-hmm. uh, which was primarily in Chicago and New York, and, you know, and, and, and think it was, a, it was part of the time when women were... Yeah. Or yeah. models... You know, they sell cars. Yep. I mean, they go to the trade show and the women are there dressed to the nines and, and they're draped over your product, draped yeah. over your product. You know, so this is sort of fall. I think it falls into that same kind of thing. And uh, of course, obviously, later on, it, it was less so. But. but what about if you're talking the 70s and the 80s when you were there? Was there a time, not particularly flyer art, just in general, was there a time that you were working on something for Atari? And thought, I, just, God, I wish we weren't depicting women like this. What with you being one? You know, I I didn't think about it. It didn't. It, it wasn't. I you know, I I was the only woman in our department, and I was the only. There weren't that many women, and our, we shared space with the industrial designers. Right. And I yeah. think there was one industrial designer. She might have been a pinball designer. There were other uh, subgroups that have more women than men, like our documentation group. We had writers who were equally men and women. Did you, um, you've pointed out that you were the only woman in your, your team. Were you ever uncomfortable? Eh, not in general, no. Uh-uh. Um, I mean, the guys are all great, mm-hmm. and they're all talented, and they're all, you know. Um, I was, you know, I'm sure there was some blue humor that went around. I just, you know, mm-hmm. I just rolled with it, you know. I, I didn't I didn't get overly sensitive about too much stuff. Yeah, I... I'm sorry to go on about this, but only a couple of years ago, in 2018, Nolan Bushnell was going to be given an award by the Games Developer Conference, a Pioneer Award, but it was pulled. You probably heard about I it. I heard about it, yeah. Yeah, and just, you know, you were a woman that was that was there at the time. What is your view on these allegations that Atari was, you know, was a, had a sexist culture? What's your take on it? being actually there well i think it will probably depend on who you work for and what department you were in i didn't experience it um and yeah i didn't experience it so i can't really speak to it yeah there was i mean you know it's been pointed out there was a lot of women that worked at atari particularly as it as it grew in the in the 80s mm-hmm. do you think women were given the same opportunities and respect as male employees you know i never i never looked too hard at that except that i knew that there were women in management yeah in coin op they had a whole research team of like six women yeah yes all, you know managed you know yeah. you, you spoke to carol Cantor. exactly i was gonna say she pointed out yeah, how many carol, women carol, were carol was yeah. a dynamic woman and she was a you know she had a great team of women and they contributed a lot to i think um the gameplay uh and all the research that they introduced to atari i don't know of other you know that was something that carol did that 
you know, I don't think anybody ever thought about doing before. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, and, um, you know, it, even after she left, I mean, her uh, predecessors, they were all part of the same team. And so there was a lot, there were groups of women who, you know, had contributed a lot. So looking back as, a, as a, let's finish this thing about uh, about gender, you know, looking back as a, as a woman and indeed, a, you know, a woman of colour mm-hmm. in the industry uh, back then, do you see it as a wholly positive experience? Or- I did, you know, back then I was, there weren't a lot, I mean, there were women, there were, it goes, I mean, it expands a, 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 some years here because when I first joined Atari, they had manufacturing and design and everything all within the same one or two buildings. Yeah. There were a lot of women in manufacturing, yeah, yeah, various finish, ages. Yeah. There are our industrial design group. Three or four out of the however many guys were Asian. And uh, when I was at Consumer, I'd say the bulk of our staff, which John Hayashi, who is Japanese-American, was our manager. And we had, I think most of his staff were women managers. And and he had, a, because consumer had become very large, we had a whole international group. We had two or three women who managed those production people. Hmm. We had writers that were women. I became a supervisor. Another designer became a supervisor. Uh, there was a woman who managed the packaging group or the production group. So we had a lot of women managers in in consumer graphics. And, the, and I'd say the mo- the staff was largely women. Evelyn, we talked a, a lot about your time at Atari, but I think that a lot of people didn't know that you worked with Nolan years after he left Atari at a venture called Catalyst Technologies. Can you tell us about that? Uh, it was 1980, 80, 81. Uh, Atari had grown and um, I don't know, the atmosphere is changing and um, Nolan had already left. And I think his uh, non-compete clause with Warner was ending to not when he when he sold it and he had seeded a lot of money uh some money into some potential other business ventures so he started this what i call a think tank called catalyst technologies and one of the one of the uh ventures was a computer well back in the day i don't know if you i don't know if you folks remember there used to be a whole thing about finding out what your color is for your wardrobe that women got right, into right are you an autumn or you you know yeah um autumn spring summer and that kind of thing so there anyway nolan had this notion that he can computerize this thing i am a i'm on autumn by the way just in case you guys are wondering i'm definitely winter oh. <laughs> <laughs> i'm a winter so <laughs> Anyway, so he thought he could autom- uh, automate this with a computer. And he, uh, his longtime assistant was Evelyn Sumida, a Japanese-American woman. And, you know, she's always been uh, a fashion person. And so he uh, had her come in as a, uh, you know, to manage this. And so she approached me about coming over to work with her. And Regan Chang as well. So Regan and I both went over there. And so that was one one of the ventures. Another one he got into was a company called ETAC, which is an auto navigation program. Right. And so um, I remember, I mean, there was a, you know, a lot of these little pods of, of things going on. And I remember these people would be coming in all hours of the day 
and you know and I, I presume worked late at night as well and it was these guys that were putting all the maps on there and ultimately he eventually sold it off to somebody and that became the precursor I think of, of what we're all using today right and that's wild to see how far ahead you know Nolan was at the time yeah now did you did you touch many of these projects or did you only work on the the fashion what was the name of the fashion company well he she uh it was called Eero. Eero. yeah and i worked on that and i also worked for uh nolan's company called axelon axelon was actually uh creating like power supplies and stuff like that but he needed he decided to adopt the name and change it and start creating electronic toys and that was his foray of getting back into the gaming business or the toy business and so i worked for i worked for that group doing package design for his electronic toys. Okay. And does that, how was that different than working with Nolan at Atari? Obviously, there's, it seems like there's less layers now. It's a little bit smaller. Was it really different? Yeah, it was different in that, yeah. I mean, um, I didn't have regular access to Nolan, but I mean, you know, there were still a couple of layers of people. There was, you know, uh, I've forgotten who was the manager of the group. Oh, Tim, uh, there was a couple of other, you know, layers of management and there was a couple of engineers and a couple of you know designers and stuff and so uh it was you know definitely sm small and startup for sure but there was a lot of um the designs were being you know uh concepts were being developed by you know some freelancers and you know and he would figure out whether he wanted to market it and stuff see one of the bears that came out he had a, a, a bear concept called ag bear and it was an electronic bear that would respond to you your voice but it would only respond in terms of electronic impulses like you know nonverbal. and the idea was that a child could take this toy and you know every child has a secret buddy right right so this teddy bear was supposed to be the secret buddy and every child's imagination would be able to interpret what this bear was saying so it was a high concept kind of thing and unfortunately, Teddy Ruxpin came on the market. Oh, that's right. Took the thunder out of everything. And people preferred a bear that sat there and spoke to you rather than you using your imagination. So unfortunately, A.G. Bear didn't get a chance. <laughs> so th so that's separate from Androbot, the home robots, right? Well, Androbot was something I think he had already started. Um, and then, but he wanted to broaden it. So he ended up buying some pre-made electronic toys from Asia and rebranded them. There was one, it was called CompuBot, and it had a, a, a keyboard on top of it that you could program little numbers or whatever to for it to do stuff, to, to turn or to turn around, to turn left, turn right. So um, that was one of the other toys that he decided to make a line. And then there was another one, uh, it was called TalkaBot. And it was a it was a remote control. You basically got two two robots. One was a handheld like controller, and the other one was the robot. And so and so he had about two. You know, he had three or four of these. And so he wanted to make it into a, a whole electronic toy line, and he wanted it ready for Toy Fair. So I was tasked to make this look like a line of toys. So that's the kind of thing I would be I'd work on. Right. And you're using just like you did at Atari, using packaging to unify what is even sort of a disparate, you know, actual product line. Right. <laughs> oh, see the power of graphic design. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and uh so then, you know, so he had a couple of lines and then the bear line, there was a couple of other bears. There was a uh a bear there was a bear line and then this 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 robot line. And then we actually got into trivia games 
as well. <laughs> Electronic trivia? No, it was actually printed card trivia because trivia trivia was becoming it was kind of a new thing at the time. People were playing trivia, mm -hmm. and so he wanted to create a set of cards with these other um, card concepts. So we ended up doing trivia game cards. He wanted to do a uh, kind of like a uh, a kit for people who wanted to make their own videos. So that was another concept. So yeah, there were some the things that were flying around that, you know, out of this quote unquote toy company of his called Axelon that these concepts were being uh, generated and considered and hopefully market. It was just a lot, I, I just remember it being a lot of work. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, uh, it was definitely a stressful time. Right, because you're, you're working in an incubator and it's and basically then, a startup environment and you're starting up multiple things, right? Right, right, right. So yeah, I left, yeah, I worked for two of them, Eero and Axelon. I, Eero ended up moving, uh, so they had, he had um, given that to another uh, project manager to develop. I kind of left that and went on to Axelon. And uh, yeah, it mean, definitely gave me a lot of packaging experience, a lot of, you know, um, from that point of view. And so I got to generate some concepts. So that was great. And actually it was while I was there, I got a call from a recruiter looking for a graphic designer for a toy company. And I thought, oh, gee, it'd be kind of fun to work for a real toy company. <laughs> and so it was an interview to go work uh, with Hasbro. Well, what happened was the interview was supposed to be for Hasbro and the interview kept getting rescheduled or didn't happen. And so, um, and it was getting close to the end of the year. And so then the recruiter called me and said, well, the Hasbro thing wasn't coming about, but you know, but there was another toy company in Minnesota, Tonka, that was also looking for somebody. Uh, Tonka at the time was mostly known for their boys toys and trucks. And the industry, the toy industry is kind of interesting because, you know, back then in those days, and as we were growing up, people separated toys. You know, there was this very few non, I mean, generic toys that were, you know, uh, either gender neutral toys. Everything was very geared towards boys or geared towards girls. And Tonka was trying to develop more toys that would interest girls. So they wanted to expand so they were looking for someone to help design some of the girls' toys packaging. So was this like pink pink trucks? <laughs> well, you know, my pretty home, uh, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, very girl oriented stuff. And stay, stay in the kitchen box. Yeah, set. something like that. And so, <laughs> so what's funny? What was funny was we we started develop. They, they developed a new line of um, cars. And so this is what's funny. They're, they're so married to blue is for boys and pink is for girls, right? Yeah. So we so we designed a package that was purple. No. <laughs> and purple had, That's... oh, yeah. And, and it was like, oh, my God. I mean, and, and of course, they had their own notion of what purple meant, right? Like a bit of purple. And so purple, and then I think we did a green one. Anyway, they were not so into... <laughs> purple and green i mean you know it was really funny and uh so that was just an interesting experience to work for a toy company that that was so narrow in their thinking wow that's wild well let me wrap up you know this portion here you know i tick off on my hand you know you worked with atari and hp and you know these toy brands and we really did, we barely even scratched the surface of talking about apple but you've worked with all these iconic brands over the year when you look back 
at like, you know, your career and all these different iconic brands, other things that were similar, the other thing that it all feel like a, you know, a grab bag of experiences. But I mean, like that's a sort of a who's who list of big, like influential consumer brands. You know, I, you know, I have to say for a child of an immigrant family, I could say that I worked in the industry I went to school for, and I, I have worked for some iconic companies, which is kind of cool. Uh, at least when I say, oh, I work for HP or I work for Atari, people know what it is. Absolutely. So, I mean, definitely it's a conversation starter. And uh, I didn't have the most glamorous positions in all the companies. But, you know, I, I contributed where I could. I mean, when I was at Apple, I left HP in um, 2005. And... Um, there was a point in time early on when the iPod first came out that HP and Apple collaborated on an HP iPod. Wow, I didn't know that. And so so I was part of that. So I you know, I have to say, I mean, I was in HP's first foray into consumer products, which were the calculators. I was there when the iPhone was developed and I was at HP when the iPod was first a big deal and they collaborated. And I don't at the time Apple was still they collaborated with HP because I think HP at the time was a little bit more ahead with the with certain aspect of marketing, I think, um, which was why they linked up. But obviously things changed after that and Apple just went, you know, they went just, you know, crazy. But there was, it's got to be a collector's item these days if you can find an HP iPod. So there aren't a whole bunch of them in your closet somewhere that we can uh I don't share. have one. Oh. I, had the, I had the box for a while. Oh. So this is how I got my introduction to Apple. There was a time when Apple was first starting that a lot of the folks that I worked with at Atari left to go work at Apple. I missed the boat. <laughs> I told you I was I was always behind, right? So I missed that boat. Had I gone, who knows where I'd be today? <laughs> You'd be counting your money on your yacht, right? With your stock options. Oh, I know, exactly. So I missed that window. But uh, you know, but when I went back to, you know, HP, we did those HP iPods. So I, I met some of the folks from from Apple. And so when I left HP, I was approached by the packaging manager at Apple who needed someone to uh as a freelancer because you know someone on her staff was leaving and the consumer electronics show was coming around the corner and so you know so i had a six-month contract to just help you know as a project manager not not, not a designer but just project manage the uh, production of some of the packaging but my time at apple was not not designing it was definitely just project management did your did your time at apple evelyn coincide with um with oh blimey i've forgotten his name now Owen Rubin. Sorry, did your did your time at Apple coincide with Owen Rubin's tenure, which I think is still uh, my uh, Owen and I knew each other at uh, Atari. Yeah, of course. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Whether he was at Apple or not, I don't know. Apple was so big. No, yeah. I mean, the, I knew a couple of people from uh, my early days. I mean, my early my time at Atari. There, there were a couple of people who had gone on to Apple that are still there. Sure. And but yeah, um, yeah I uh, didn't think to check up. Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you, did you have any, you, you were at Atari just after Steve Jobs. Have I, have I got that right in the timeline? This is me kind of going off piece a little here as well. Do you have any experience of Steve? No, I didn't know him then. It was really funny because when I was at HP, the division I was at, Steve Wozniak was upstairs as an engineer at HP. Oh, right, really? Yeah. He and I, he were, right. he and I were, worked for the same division. Oh, interesting. It's about it. It's about I didn't know him. 
I I learned about it afterwards. Ah, uh, okay. Wasn't it was. <laughs> uh, probably at that time he was probably working with Steve on other stuff, but uh, yeah. yeah. So eventually, uh, the, you know, they both started their own. They 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 both started their own thing. Well, Evelyn, I just wanted to say thank you for sharing your work and your time and your experiences, both at Atari and all these other uh, Silicon Valley stalwarts. It's just really great to see graphic design being represented one, but also all the connections and the, and the ways that you sort of connected with all these other creative people in this industry as a designer uh, throughout your career. So thanks for sharing that with us. Thank you, Tim. And thank you for uh, just uh, for including me. And uh, I'm glad I could contribute in some way. You really are too modest. Can we just say thank you for sharing so many wonderful insights, again, into that pioneering work and, and also that, you know, the, the process uh, as well as of your own memories. It's been a real pleasure. And you know what? Am I allowed to email you? Because I'm intrigued if you've got any flyers and I'll perhaps send one across so you can sign. Oh, absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. And I appreciate both of you having me on. It's been great fun. And thank you, Tim. And both of you guys for keeping Atari alive. Absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, we should also say thank you to uh, Mr. Tim Lapatino at this point for setting this interview up. It wouldn't have happened without him. Absolutely. And also, Paul and Richard, thanks for letting me come in and, uh, you know, guest host here. Hey, friend of the show. You're a natural. He is. Yeah, yeah. You'll you'll be on again, I'm sure. That's, That's for sure. Nice one, Tim. Thanks so much, mate. We'll speak soon. Yeah, thank you, guys. Take care, Tim. See you, buddy. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.